Kids up through fifth grade are dismissed to your classrooms. Uh, for the rest of us, let's continue in worship by turning in our Bibles to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, we will be in chapter 22, verses 15 to 22 this morning. Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. This is uh, week number two in our walk through the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, so today's Tuesday. Last week was Monday, and uh, today is Tuesday. And so we're moving along in the week. And uh, as you see, I have my uh, WWJD bracelet this morning. Uh, somebody gave that to me uh, this morning as I was walking into the worship center. And uh, so if you um, don't know what that's about, if you weren't here last week, I apologize. We actually, the live stream cut out uh, mid-sermon. Uh, mid so actually, Mike Carlo texted me and said that right when I mentioned a specific college football team whose colors are maize and blue, the, the live stream immediately went out. So uh, I'm going to be careful not to mention that, anything about them again, but I, uh, and we didn't have a recording, so I'm going to try to re-record at some point that sermon um, if you uh, want to hear it, but uh, we talked last week about Jesus cleansing the temple, clearing out the temple, uh, and making way for a, a new way uh, to, um, to experience the presence of God. And it wasn't going to be in the temple anymore. It was going to be through the Holy Spirit. And uh, so now, uh, as you can imagine, uh, when Jesus is overturning the old orders and old ways of worship, uh, that is making the people who was in charge of those things a little bit upset. And so uh, we left off last week, and uh, the religious leaders decided that they couldn't put up with this Jesus guy anymore. And so as we continue on uh, today into Tuesday, they have now set a trap for Jesus uh, that they are hoping he will fall into so they can take care of him once and for all. So let's take a look at that trap that was set for Jesus and see uh, if it catches him or if he's able to uh, get out. So look with me at Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. It says this, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the, that's the trap. And Jesus, having none of it, verse 18, perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Their trap didn't work. Why not? Well, let's pray, and then let's talk about it. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, um, oh, what a joy uh, to be together this morning as a church family. Um, we love one another and love you, and um, we can worship you together and sing the truth of who you are and how you've changed every one of our lives, God. 
Everyone in here this morning who is following you has a life changed because of Jesus. And we praise you for that, God. And we have this opportunity to study the, the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion and resurrection. And uh, we're so... Um, just so grateful that we have your word, and uh, we ask that you would reveal to us what you want us to see. Lord, help us to see you more clearly in this text, and help us to see ourselves more clearly, and know how you are calling us to live as a response to who you are. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you have uh, in your house little kids or if you have little grandkids, or if you work with kids, or if you're a teacher, if there's any sort of, any young people in your life ever, then you know, or have ever had that experience, then you know how quickly things can change in your household uh, when it comes to having little ones. Um, you, uh, maybe you've had the experience where you're, you know, in a room and you've got three little kids and they're all happy and getting along and everything's great. And then you go to like, go to the bathroom or something, you get back and like two of them are screaming. Like there's one that's like chewing on broken glass and there's blood everywhere. And you're just like, what happened here? Right? Like I was gone for two minutes and everything is just like a complete and utter disaster and everything's changed. How many of you experienced this before? Right? And what happened here? And, uh, I, I think of that a little bit in terms of like how we treat the last week of Jesus's life, right? Like we have uh, Palm Sunday and everyone's worshiping him and then we do Good Friday, but maybe you skip the Good Friday service and you come back on Easter Sunday and you're like, wait a second, <laughs> what happened here? You mean when the span of a week he was a king and then they killed him and now he's raised to life and, and, and uh, what happened and um, I know we know what happened, right? Nobody, very few people probably have gone to church on Palm Sunday not knowing what was then going to happen the following week, right? But do we really know why it happened? Why now? Why was Jesus put to death like on this week that he was put to death? What really happened and I think so often when we study, you know, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, which we have to do just by time constraints. We can't spend, you know, two months on this last week of Jesus' life every year. But when we just go boom, boom, we can kind of actually miss what happened in the story. But there's another reason, actually, why we can maybe not fully understand. You know, we just take it for granted. Yeah, well, Jesus was going to die that week, so they just put him to death. But if we don't fully understand, and the reason is actually because we don't know uh, the history of what was going on at the time very well. A couple weeks ago, Pastor David and I, we meet on Friday mornings, and I think it was then he, he asked me, he was like, I have a question, Pastor Mike. Like, um, what, like, what happened in between like the Old Testament being written and then Jesus coming. Like, I know it's like the 400 years of silence, but like, what actually happened during that time? And uh, I, I, I maybe knew a little bit, but not really. And uh, I have a, a lot of Bible school in my background, and I didn't really know. And probably I imagine for most of us in this room, we don't really know, like, what was actually going on with the Jewish people at that time? And maybe 95% of you right now are like, I don't really care what was going on 
at that time. But I think you do. So I, we're, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson. Everyone's two favorite words when you put them together in the English language. We're going to have a little bit of a history lesson uh, because we need to figure out what was going on. Last week, I shared with you how the Jewish people, uh, they thought that the Messiah was going to come to rid them of the Gentiles, that the Gentiles weren't going to bother them anymore. And we said that was the opposite of why Jesus came. Jesus came to graft the Gentiles to the family of God. Um, but why did they think that that's what was going to happen? And, and they had good reason to think that. And so we're going to kind of back up, and I'm just going to Please, please stick with me this morning. I promise it'll be worth it. Okay? Can you everyone, can you nod your head that you'll stick with me? And we'll, It won't take too long. But we're going to talk about some of this history. And we actually need to start back uh, with uh, Daniel. Do you guys remember if we were here when we preached through Daniel? The, the uh, Jewish people were in exile. Where? Who had taken them into exile? What people? It starts with a B. It was just... Babylon, very good. Okay, so we're good. we're good this morning. That's good. So they're ba in Babylon, and uh, and the temple that uh, the temple, which was the meeting place between God and man, had been destroyed. Right, and so the Israelite people are captive in Babylon, and then uh, a little bit later. Um, well, as though then at the end of the Daniel, you remember there's these, he has these visions, right? These visions of these beasts coming out of the sea. And those beasts are going to represent different kingdoms that were going to do worse and worse things uh, to Israel. And that's exactly what happens. But first, many of the Jewish people were actually allowed to return to their land and uh, rebuild the temple and the walls around Jerusalem. And there's uh, two books of the Old Testament that kind of tell us this story. Does anyone know what those books are? Ezra and Nehemiah. Very good. So they're allowed to return and rebuild the temple. The problem is it's not a very good temple. Oh, it's like, uh, the first temple is like the Ritz-Carlton. They build the second temple, and it's like a Motel 6. It's just not, it's like, it does the same thing. It's got the same function, but it's not the, you know, it's not the Ritz-Carlton. And, uh, and um, but they have the temple, and, um, and then it doesn't go well because they are, um, once again, um, forced out of the temple. And so, um, so there's this, we're in now the period where the second temple exists. Does anyone know what historians call the period of the second temple? It's the second temple period. Okay, it's not too complicated. <laughs> so we're in the second temple period. And uh, then all these beastly kingdoms start to come into power and things get really bad. And so we're about like 200 years before Jesus, 200 BC, things have gotten so bad that now their tiny temple is being used by other nations to offer sacrifices to other gods. And so I want you to imagine how you would feel if we were forcibly removed from like this building and like the Muslim call to prayer like went out from speakers in this building every day. We would feel pretty bad about that. But we'd be okay because we'd, well, I mean, we would adapt, right? It would not be good, but we would adapt. And we'd, if we had to do house churches or whatever, like we'd figure out a way for God's people to meet and, God, uh, and to meet with God. So we could figure it out. But, uh, 
But back then, the temple was the only place where you could truly meet the presence of God. And so if you don't have the temple, you don't have God's presence. So this is really bad. And you can understand why the Jewish people who are just trying to do what the law told them to do and aren't being allowed to because of these foreign nations, you can understand, can't you, why they want to remove these foreign nations from their land and their temple so they can worship God. Can we all understand that? And so along comes around like 160 BC, uh, a guy named Judas Maccabeus. Everyone say Judas Maccabeus. Yeah, it's fun to say, but his nickname is even more fun. Does anyone know what his nickname was? The Hammer. How cool of a nickname is that? And uh, no one's ever been tempted to call me the Hammer, but uh, this guy was the Hammer. And uh, he was the hammer because he led a revolt against these nations and uh, actually purified the temple. It was successful. And so the Jewish people to this day celebrate a feast in honor of this, and it's Hanukkah. So this is where the origins of Hanukkah are um, the, the temple finally being restored to uh, essentially uh, the, the, the nations are gone, and so now uh, they're able to worship God again. But Israel doesn't have the best history when they're left in charge, do they, and in terms of how they worship God. And so it just immediately things get bad again, and, uh, and uh, eventually the Romans come in. And so now we're at like 63 BC, uh, so just not that far before Jesus was born. So you see we have the, the temple, and then the Babylonians kick them out, destroy the temple, and then they rebuild the temple, but it's not that great, and then uh, there's more foreign nations, and then the hammer clears them out, and they get their temple again, but then things go bad, and now the Romans once again have overtaken them. And uh, this is now the political climate that Jesus enters into. And um, so the Romans are here, and Herod's in charge, and, which is not great. But Herod decides, man, you guys didn't do a very good job with rebuilding the temple. I'm going to actually try to make it nice. And so Herod, one thing that he does is try to restore the temple to its natural beauty. So Jesus is actually alive when a massive reconstruction project is going on. It went on for, uh, I think, like 100 years. Uh, and they're trying to restore the temple to its beauty. But then Herod also did other things like that whole killing all the babies under two thing. And, you know, that's not, that's a bummer. So, like, and then he uh, appoints all these men, these men who are just, like, super oppressive to Israel. So I, I want us to, if you've checked out, which is fine, but I want you to check back in right now because this is the climate that we're in, um, that Jesus has entered into. And we have different, the Jewish people kind of think differently about what to do because it's a weird time. Uh, you have many Jewish people who have basically become like the culture around them in every way, and they're just kind of like, live and let live. Let's not, you know, the, yeah, we have to, taxes are high, but, you know, we can, we just, it's just fine. Let's just not make a big stink here, people. And, but then you have other people like uh, the zealots who want to use military force to overthrow the Romans right now, 
And then you have the Pharisees who are just horrified at how few people are actually following the law. And now Jesus has, is gathering a crowd around him and he's entered into Jerusalem during the most crowded week of the year. And now he has the attention not only of all the Jewish people, but all the Roman authorities. And they're like, wait a second, does this Jesus guy think that he's the king? All these people are calling him the king, but he's not really acting like he's the king. He's never said that he wants to overthrow us, but all these people kind of think he's going to. And so you have, like, it's just, it could not be more of a tinderbox that Jesus has walked into and then Jesus cleans out the temple and like we said that was the last straw for the religious leaders like this this Jesus problem has to go away like we cannot abide this Jesus guy any longer he we have to take care of it and so uh, they decide that they're going to um, they're going to kill him okay how are we doing so far okay scale of one to ten like a six we're okay okay this is where we're at. The people are skittish because they're ready to be out of Roman oppression. The religious leaders are skittish because these crowds are really starting to follow Jesus. And Jesus has nothing nice to say about them. And, uh, and the Roman authorities are skittish because these crowds are hailing this Jewish man as their king. And that's a problem. And so, you, so now put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees, and you can understand where they're coming from. Again, this is, um, we're supposed to follow the law, people, and this Jesus guy, all he does is bash us, and we're the ones telling everyone to follow the law. And God told us to follow the law, right? You can see where they're coming from, so you got to take care of him. But what do you do? You can't just stab him, <laughs> because, uh, well, then you got a problem with the crowd, right? And so they hatch a plan. And their plan is brilliant, okay? You've got to hand it to the Pharisees on this one. I don't say that very often. They have a brilliant plan. Uh, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Sorry, I don't know the sign for Herodians. That's got to be a tough one uh, to translate, but it's the Herodians are the people who are on Herod's side. It's like the police or the army or whatever. These are people representing Roman interests. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Isn't that funny how they're just like buttering him up, right? They're, they're trying to trap him so he's killed, and they're just, oh, we know you're truthful, and teach truthfully the way of God. Um, but then they ask him the million-dollar question, should we be paying taxes to Caesar? And... Uh, this was a good question. See, the Jewish people hated paying this tax to Caesar. They were very good Republicans in this way. They did not like being taxed. And uh, every time they had to, spit to, to pay this tax, they were reminded uh, that, again, they weren't where they wanted to be. They weren't in charge. And so if Jesus says no... 
we shouldn't pay this tax to Caesar, which is how all these people would have expected him. They're hailing him as the king of the Jews. This whole crowd is expecting him to say, no, we're not going to pay that tax to Caesar. Well, what has he done now? He's now incriminated himself in front of these Herodians and given them cause for his arrest. And we don't really feel the force of that because where we live, right? We are free in America to criticize the government and say, I don't think we should have to pay these taxes and you're going to be fine, right? You're not going to be arrested for that. This is not just like a benign opinion question. Jesus, do you think we should pay taxes? Like, Jesus, do you like cilantro on your tacos or not? Or like, it's not like, this is not a benign question. This is a life or death question that they've asked him in front of these people. So imagine being asked in front of like the Russian army if you support Putin or not. In front of a crowd that is, expects you to be anti-Putin. That is what's happening here. So if Jesus says, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, boom, that's his death sentence. If he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, that is the most disappointing thing he could have said in front of this crowd, and he's immediately lost all credibility. He's immediately lost his influence. He's, he's nothing anymore. It's, oh, we thought Jesus was going to be the one. We thought he was the revolutionary, and turns out uh, he's not. He thinks he's just pro-Rome just like everyone else. You see the predicament Jesus is in. And so the, the Pharisees are like, he's been skating by. He hasn't made his intentions clear yet. Does he intend to overthrow Rome or not? We're going to ask him in front of Rome and in front of his people, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You feel the, like the brilliance of that. And also, Jesus is kind of stuck. And so what would you say <laughs> if you're Jesus there? Um... Uh, I don't know. Uh, let me think about that for a minute, right? But Jesus, um, Jesus fights brilliance with brilliance, and he has the best answer possible. He says, who's got a coin on them? And uh, so one of them produces a coin, and he says, whose image on, is on this coin, and whose inscription? And I'm sure they were a little taken aback, like this isn't what I was expecting Jesus to say. My answer uh, Caesar's, and then he answers, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And that was a life-saving answer for Jesus in that moment. Why? Because here, both parties could hear in that answer what they wanted to hear. Right? The Herodians could report, report back to Herod, and it's like, well, he says they should be paying taxes. says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But for his followers... It almost sounds like Jesus is saying, this coin that has Caesar's face on it, well, that's not going to be worth anything anymore. Not when we take over. He can have that coin. He wants the coins with his face on them. They're worth nothing. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So you see, both parties could hear what they wanted to say. Does, does that make sense? What they wanted to hear. And, uh, and so this is a, a brilliant political move here that Jesus has made. Um, and he could have stopped there, and that would have been the end of it. But there's like another layer to Jesus' brilliance, because he's not only taking this, this incredibly high-pressure test and, and trap and getting out of it, but he's flipping it on his head and using it to teach everybody something 
that they need to hear because he continues. He moves from brilliant politician to brilliant theologian. And he says, and to God, give the things that are God's. Give to God the things that are God's. Now let's go back to the coin for, for a minute. Whose what did he ask was stamped on that coin? Whose image? Hmm. Let's think about that word, image. You think the, the people, Jewish people that, he's, that were hearing him uh, knew their Bibles or their scrolls, I guess? You, ever, you think they uh, ever read Genesis chapter 1? Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So now the question isn't whose image is on the coin. The question is, where is God's image stamped? What's the answer? You. So give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. And that is the far more important point that Jesus is making. And it's, it's brilliant. Jesus has wriggled his way out of the Pharisees' death trap. And he's taught a powerful lesson about our obligation to God all within the span of two sentences. Pastor Mike, you could learn something from Jesus here. Let's try a two-sentence sermon every once in a while. It's not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm no Jesus. It takes me about uh, 35 minutes uh, to get to even scratch the surface of what Jesus is doing here. Um, but we shouldn't just step back and say, wow, Jesus is amazing, he's brilliant, and then there. We need to talk about uh, what, what does this mean to us, and how do we, who weren't there, apply this to our lives? And so we're going to ask, how do we as Christians give to Caesar what is Caesar's? And then we're going to ask, how do we give to God what is God's. And so the first question is, how do we give Caesar what is Caesar's? And this is not necessarily an easy thing to figure out. Like this is a whole sermon series that uh, in and of itself, how are Christians called to relate to government? What kind of citizens are we called to be? And see, things were so volatile among the Jewish people when Jesus came, there were so many people ready to start a political revolution if Jesus had only said the word. Boom. He had crowds, man. And if he wanted to begin to overthrow Rome, he could have gotten a good start. These people were so ready to disobey the government, and they were even willing to give up their lives for the cause of the advancement of their people and their country and their God. In fact, this would actually happen after Jesus uh, died and ascended into heaven. Uh, A.D. 63, the temple's rebuilt. A.D. 70, there's a Jewish revolt, and uh, the temple is destroyed. So they tried it after Jesus. So Jesus kind of comes in the middle of this time when people were ready to overthrow Rome and it said he, would, he had nothing to do with it. He wasn't interested in that at all. Why not? Because God's people didn't have a political problem. They had a heart problem. 
They didn't need a leader who could defeat their enemies. They needed a physician who could fix their hearts. You see the difference? Israel had plenty of chances under powerful, charismatic leaders to rid their country of foreign gods and serve Yahweh forever and ever. And what happened every time? Sin ruined everything. Even when that hammer guy purified the temple, right? It took like a couple of years and it was right back to being corrupted. So Jesus didn't come for political advancement because political advancement is really short-sighted when you think about the eternal kingdom of God, isn't it? Like really short-sighted. And uh, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to bring in a new heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one. And if you're part of the people of God, you are part of that heavenly kingdom. That is where your first citizenship is. That's where your first home is. You have dual citizenship right now, but you're the important one is in heaven. And so what, are we, what kind of Christians are we called to be? As now, as Peter says, we're exiles on this earth. Longing for our home in eternity. What kind of citizens are we called to be? The kind who give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The kind who, like Peter says in 1 Peter 2, are subject to the Lord's sake for ev to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. We're called to be the kind of citizens who don't just like obsess over politics all the time because we know that even if, uh, even if every single one of your preferred politicians was in office and every single judge that you preferred was in every uh, judgeship across the land, uh, and uh, guess what? That wouldn't be any closer to solving our sin problem, not, not even one ounce closer. And so it doesn't mean we should be politically ignorant or even politically apathetic but I think what Jesus, I think Jesus would say that politics shouldn't be the driving force of your life if you're a Christian, because we have a heavenly kingdom that we are called to build, first and foremost. And if the government oversteps and compels you to do something that goes against God's word, uh, you disobey because the government's not your ultimate authority. God is. And we have our missionary friend who was just here. Uh, a couple weeks ago in a country where it is illegal to try to persuade someone to become a Christian. You can get thrown in jail uh, or, or for if, if the government decides that you have tried to persuade someone to become a Christian. So is that the kind of government that as Christians are called to be subject to? Should Christians then stop sharing the gospel um, because the government says it's illegal? No, absolutely not. So we're always prepared to disobey the government if we're compelled to disobey our first authority. But that's only in the context of, in every possible way, we're called to be good uh, citizens who are subject in every way that we can. And I understand this is not the way to like, build an audience nowadays. Like, come on, guys, let's comply with the government. Who's with me, right? Like, uh, woo, like, it's... it's it's not how you really get people fired up. But it's what Jesus said to do. So you give to Caesar 
what is Caesar's. And uh, Peter told his people to be subject to Nero, literal Nero, in every way that they could. So if you're a Republican, you can be subject to a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, you can be subject to a Republican. If you're a Libertarian, I guess you're off the hook. I don't know, but you know what I mean. So if you're the kind of person who's just like ready to throw down against the government all the time, like let's just take a deep breath. And remember, Jesus could have easily led a revolt if that was what he was all about. And instead, he told his people to give to Caesar's what is Caesar, what is Caesar's. And if you really want to th- like throw down, like let's take that energy and let's redirect it to the Great Commission to the people who have never heard the gospel before. And, uh, and that is our miss- mission, and that should be our focus. And that's my politics sermon for you right there. I don't talk about politics very much. It's perfectly timed in July of a non-election year, right? It's just like nailed it, Mike. Um, <laughs> That's pretty much where I fall politically, in case any of you were wondering. It's kind of boring, but it's biblical. Obey where you can, disobey if you must, and focus more on your heavenly kingdom than your earthly one. I'll say that again. Obey when you can, and disobey if you must, and focus more on your heavenly kingdom than your earthly kingdom. And that's how we, I think, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But that's not the primary purpose of what Jesus is saying here. He's using that as an illustration to really tell us that we need to give to God what is God's. And, uh, and what is God's is you, all of you and your existence and, and your whole person and your life. Because God's image is stamped on you. So let me ask you, if you owe Caesar a stupid little coin and you owe God everything, who's the bigger deal? God. Who should you fear more? God. Who should you be more concerned with? God. So if you've been created in his image, you owe him everything. But because you're human, you don't want to give him everything. I don't want to give God everything. I want to give God just enough so he's happy and then I can hold the rest back for myself. Can anyone else relate to that at all? Yeah. God, what's the minimum I can give you to make you happy? It's like paying taxes. What's the minimum I need to give the government to so that I'm in compliance? How many of you are getting, you're, you're filling out your taxes like, man, I just spent a, I've been blessed financially this year. I'm just going to write the government, you know, a, a couple extra thousand dollars. I feel like they deserve it. They've worked really hard this year, right? No. And don't we operate the same way with God? Like he's like just taxing us and so I'm going to go to church just paying Giving, paying part of my coin and, and giving my tithe and, and being a nice person and not drink too much and whatever, right? Whatever you think like, oh, I'm just going to give the minimum of myself so that God's happy with me. And what God says is, my image is stamped on you. I want all of you, your whole person, your whole self. And that's really hard to do. And so uh, this morning... 
We're going to close the same way that we did last week. Last week, we talked about Jesus uh, cleansing the temple and saying, now we really, uh, our hearts are the place of the new temple. And when we think about cleansing things, we want to first start with, well, where's my heart? And now this morning, so we spent some time in prayer and asking Jesus to reveal to us, what are some things that you want to cleanse? So this morning, I want to close in prayer in the same way and thinking about how can I give to God more of myself? What is God asking of me to give to him? What have I been holding back that I need to hand over? So I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes in silent prayers like we did last week to spend with the Lord and ask him, God, what am I holding from you? And what are you calling me to give you? So just spend some time in, the, with, in prayer with the Lord right now. And then in a couple minutes, I'll close this. And then we'll sing. Let's go before the Lord.